Welcome to At The Flicks. Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. Welcome to our latest review show. This month, our reviews include News of the World, Willy's Wonderland and One Night in Miami. Then there is Jeff's Quiz, which I thought he would give up on after we nearly beat him last month. And if my memory serves me correctly, you answered none of them, Neil. Yeah. Later in the show, there is, of course, Darren's Dash, which this month includes White Tiger, Moxie and White God. Finally, before we start the show, a shout out to our regular listener and friend of the pod, Martin Gregson. Hi, Martin. (laughs) Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff and my main cinema interests are political and horror movies. After a dark year, it's starting to look like there is finally light at the end of the tunnel. AMC recently announced that they're reopening their cinemas across America and films are being moved into opening positions, some even bringing their releases forward. It looks like there will actually be a summer 2021 cinema movie season. Who'd have thought it? It only is a matter of time before we get UK clarification, if that hasn't happened already in the gap between recording this show and uploading it. So I got to thinking, as I always do. I do the thinking for the team, you know me. This summer, what film am I most looking forward to seeing? Well, for me, it has to be Peter Rabbit 2, The Runaway, due to open at the end of May. Why this one, you ask, and as you're writing it down to see it yourselves? Because I support local filmmaking. It was filmed in part in Gloucestershire, and the first one was Ace. What about you guys? What are you looking forward to seeing? Hi, my name is Graham. My main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. My most anticipated film of the summer has to be... Jeff, you've changed my bloody script again. Fast and Furious 9, it says here, or as fans like me like to call it, effing 9. Oh, no, F9, right. The Vin, The Rock, non-stop IMAX action. Time to bask in the glow of cinematic perfection, said no one ever. (laughs) Hi, my name is Neil. Well, I made a promise that when cinemas reopen, I would go to see a double bill, apparently, of Quiet Place 1 and 2. Everyone raves about the first, especially my film champion, Jeff. So I thought I must see them in a cinema. Can't wait. Sorry, that should read, I can wait. Hi, my name's Phil. You can find out more about my film tastes on my blog, which is at philverbearblog at wordpress.com. My most anticipated film of the summer, and Jeff hasn't got to my script, is um, <laughs> Top Gun Maverick because Tom Cruise is the king of high-octane action movies and I can't get that sort of thing on my flat screen at home. I really want to see a big, massive action film, much like F9 at the cinema screen. <laughs> Hi, my name is Darren and I like everything from sci-fi to musicals, Hong Kong gangster films to biopics, and I have a taste for cheap and crappy B-movies. You can find out more about my uh, film taste at uh, halfguarded.com. You can also read about me reminiscing about video rental stores of the 80s. And the film that I most want to see this summer is the one that started lockdown off altogether, which is No Time to Die, the very first film to be put back. So that's the one I really want to see. Thank you, everyone. Some great film choices there. How about everyone listening? What are you most looking forward to? 
How about you, Martin, our listener of the month? Please let us know. <laughs> Unfortunately, following that intelligent conversation, we now have Jeff and his silly quiz. Thanks, Neil. I expect you to start coughing shortly, as this month we're doing the quiz in the style of who wants to be a millionaire or, goodness gracious me, that's for all you No! I read it through and I thought he's not going to go there. Sake. It was politically correct when Peter Sellers did it. Was it? In the 60s, Jeff. In the 60s. Yeah. <sighs> okay. <laughs> Last month was a very good one for the team. They got three out of four correct. No help from Neil, of course. <laughs> the one they didn't get, and a few of you out there did, was the following. The cast included Richard Keel, Scatman Crothers, Patrick McGowan, and Gene Wilder. What was the film? It was, of course... Silver Streak. Well done to everyone who got it right. It's time for the quiz. I go over to my hidden script. Here we go with this month's questions. And guys, there's no multiple choices. Question one. What is the name of the fictitious town where Jim Carrey lives in the movie The Truman Show? Oh, God's sake, Neil. Mm. <laughs> so long since I've seen that. Right. Okay. That deafening silence as the tumbleweed <laughs> goes down means nobody's got it. <laughs> Question two. What type of car did Steve McQueen drive in the classic film Bullet? One with pedals. It was. Uh, it was. It was great. No, no, it no, was no. A, um, um, it was a GT three fifty. Actually, I'm going to give him that. It's a Ford Mustang GT nineteen sixty eight. Three. One. Mm. Got one. Right. Okay. Number three. Name the film General Stilwell, played by Robert Stack, is watching when disturbed by panicking military personnel in the Steven Spielberg movie 1941. Oh, dear. And to all those listening, you might think I work with a team of film experts. You've seen the truth. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus, 1941. Okay. Question four. Final one of this round. What was the name of the underwater research facility featured in The Meg? Hang on, guys. I can answer this. Jeff, I'm going to phone a friend. You haven't got any friends. (laughs) I've got a shark friend. A friend who knows all about shark movies. Let me just call her. Hi, Emma. It's Graham from At The Flicks. We're doing Jeff's silly quiz at the minute, and he's asked a shark question. Can you help us out? Oh, I'll give it a go. Okay, Jeff. Thanks, Emma. I'm terribly sorry to bother you this evening. Clearly, none of this lot know anything about shark questions, so they rely on you. The question was, what was the name of the underwater research facility featured in The Meg? Well, I've only watched that film once or twice. Um, I think, I think the answer is Manor One. Spawn. 
Well done. <laughs> yep. You win the quiz this week. Yeah. Thank you Bye. very much, Emma. Thanks, Emma. Cheers. That seemed like cheating to me. <laughs> Okay, time for our movie reviews, and let's start this month back in the 1960s, which Jeff remembers well, with One Night in Miami. Uh, I was made in America, land of the free home of the brave. This movement that we are in is called a struggle, because we are fighting for our lives. This ain't about civil rights. They ain't giving black people what they really want. What's that? I was made in America. That's why I'm out here saving America. Power. Black power. I like the sound of that. Uh, I wish I lived in America. We have to be there for each other. Uh, heard everybody rich. All I gotta do is run, jump, kick. I'm gonna hit in your area. Uh, I'd have made it to America. Uh, I'm amazed at America. Welcome to America. February 25th, 1964. A momentous night in boxing history. 22-year-old Cassius Clay, played by Ellie Goree, unexpectedly beats Sonny Liston to become the heavyweight champion of the world. After the fight, Clay meets a few friends, but not just any friends. These are NFL player and actor Jim Brown, played by Aldis Hodge, singer Sam Cooke, Leslie Odom Jr., and activist Malcolm X, played by Lance Reddick. What happened that night changed America. Film. Um, um, Lance Sorry, Reddick Lance Reddick was the was the um, the guy was, outside. Yeah, was it? Who was playing Malcolm X then? Uh, um, Kingsley Benadire. Oh, nice one! Glad somebody was paying attention. He's he's been cast in the new Marvel TV series, by the Fantastic. way. Fantastic! Yeah, he was also in Peaky Blinders. He was wet stick in King Alfred, King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. That His one. American accent was exceptionally good. It was, it? yeah. Malcolm X as played by Kingsley Ben-Adir. What happened that night changed America. Phil, did this Amazon Prime movie hit you with a knockout blow? I'm going to be the odd one out here, guys, because I just really did not get on with this film. I watched it one and a half times because I read about how great it was, and I watched it, and I just did not enjoy it. And then I started watching it again, and I got about halfway through, and I just thought, nope. I just didn't enjoy it. I just couldn't couldn't get on with it at all. And it's it's a really odd one. The four central performances were really good. I was really impressed with all of the actors. It's a really heavyweight, important subject. But it just did not escape the fact that it's a stage play put onto film. I just found it really stifling, not dynamic. It didn't hold my attention. Um <laughs> There are bits at the beginning and the end where they're not in that motel, and I thought they were great. The song at the end with Sam Cooke by, with Leslie Odom Jr., I thought that was great. I'm sure you're going to disagree with me, and I'm sure you're going to tell me what's good about it, and hopefully maybe I'll try it again another time. But recently we've had something like Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which is a film based on a stage play that for me soared, and I really enjoyed it. I didn't get it, so tell me what, what's good about this, guys. <laughs> but before we go on to that, uh, I just want to ask about Regina Hall's direction. Do you think this was a, a bad choice for her to make her directorial debut with? 
I'm just one person and I've read so much good stuff about this film that I was just surprised that I didn't go on with it at all. Um, and I suppose, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't think it is a bad choice given the plaudits that she's received. For me, it was just too stagey. It wasn't film enough. It wasn't dynamic. It was it just, I don't know. I just couldn't get on with it at okay. all. It's no, Regina King, by the way, not Regina Hall. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. And now to somebody who came of age in the 60s. Graham, what's your view? I was very impressed with her direction. I thought this was a pivotal point in in world history. Kennedy had been killed a few months ago. President Johnson was working up a case for the U.S. involvement in Vietnam. We dropped four very intelligent, articulate, well-spoken black men into the maelstrom of those days. Three. <laughs> you don't think that Jim Brown was well-spoken. The no. actor who played him presented him as a very well-spoken and well and thoughtful young man. And a good listener. And a very good listener, yeah. I thought it was great. I thought it started well. I thought the boxing scenes were fantastic. I talked to my brother, who's a huge boxing fan, and he said that it showed the speed and the movement of Ali beautifully, the way he could dodge very, very quickly and was so fast, particularly the Cooper fight where he was overconfident and got knocked over. And that's not a spoiler. Anybody who knows their history knows that Henry Cooper knocked him out. And if it wasn't for Angela... didn't knock him out. It was also the... um, Yeah, go on. Sorry, I'll get on. Knocked him down. If Angelo Dundee hadn't cut the glove with his... Cut the glove, etc., yeah. Yeah. If you continue to be pedantic, Neil, I'm coming round to your house and pulling that wire out of that. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, here we're all jumping in. It it was a really interesting time in history. These four young men... Every single one of them is the physical manifestation of a threat to the established order. I just thought it was wonderful. I know what Phil's saying. It's not the most dynamic film when it goes into its sort of stage presentation mode, but that's the point when you lean back and just listen to the words, and I thought the words were brilliant. The racism was done very well. You could see the level of racism that was Uh, present in the South in those days, probably everywhere in America, actually. But it was so clearly presented. Jim Brown going to that house and having to stay outside, Ali off camera, racism about he was just working for a white syndicate, and all the other things, Sam Cooke, and obviously when we had Malcolm X as well with the FBI following him around. I thought it was so well done. I found it fascinating. I thought the dynamic between the men was engrossing. I liked the way the dialogue snapped backwards and forwards. Yes, it's obviously a stage play. And to UK audiences, it's very Tom Stoppard type stage play. It seemed at points it had been kneaded and stretched and rolled out to fill the, the, the camera. Excuse um, me, Neil didn't jump in there to say it wasn't Tom Stoppard, it was Kemp Powers. <laughs> God's sake. <laughs> Jeff. For me, thank you very much. I found some of it a bit slow and a bit staged. The, the piece on the roof I find particularly hard to work through, but apart from that, I thought it was fantastic. I mean, I know critics are saying it's too wordy, but I thought it was exactly what I would expect from very articulate black men. I didn't find the film preachy, and I did think it wasn't selling me a message. It was just showed me what it was like in those days and what it was like for smart 
black people who were trying to change the world. I enjoyed this a lot more than I thought I would. I can't believe this is Regina, Regina, Regina King's first feature film. Careful, Neil will correct you. <laughs> Setting a film in one room for 80% of the running time makes economic sense, but it takes a lot of thought about camera placement and how you're going to keep it going. And they say the mark of a good film is if you want to go and read the book. Well, in this one, I'd really like to go and see the play. Thank you. Pedantic deal. It's a, an at the flicks cliche, but I, I actually agree with Graham on this one. <laughs> um <laughs> The imagination, I mean, the, the the actual meeting did happen and the imagination to fill in the details of an event and make it work. Yes, it's it's a stage play and it looks like a stage play when, she, when it's filmed. Liked it despite of that. I thought the Kingsley Benadir who played um, Wet Stick in King Arthur, Legend of the Saw, the Guy Ritchie film, was fantastic as as uh, Malcolm X, is the intensity of the man, and he brought that right through. Al Gore, four years after the Olympics, the light heavyweight champion at the Olympics is uh, is suddenly becomes heavyweight champion of the world, beating the great Sonny Liston. Absolutely fantastic. He's buzzing and jumping around the walls. Um, Aldous Hodd as Jim Brown, a quiet man and listening so well. Absolutely fantastic. And he was a legend in his in his time. But uh, standout- Excuse me, sorry, but on that point, he may be a legend, but he won that good a runner because he was shot down by the Germans in the dirty dozen. He didn't make it out. He was, yes, yes. That was his. Uh, yeah, it's not real. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't really use him as a runner, which was a shame because until uh, O.J. Simpson beat him, he was a record that stayed for about ten years. That one, uh, Leslie O'Dom Jr. as Sam Cooke was a standout. I think he was amazing. I don't know if they actually dubbed the uh, singing. But uh, if they didn't, he was absolutely stunning. It's a wonderful thing about quests of uh, economic and political power of all four standing tall, su- succeeding in part and all the, all the problems they have. And then the mounting conflicts inside and outside the motel room, which is think- I think is where it works because of the separate the whole, the outside world and, and them, I thought made for an excellent film. Bo Bridges nails his cameo as a racist dick. I thought that worked really well. That wasn't Bo Bridges, was it? Um, that was Don Johnson. Yeah. It's amazing he's right, fellow. I would have corrected him. <laughs> no, I thought it was Don Johnson. Oh, wow. The woman alongside Bo Bridges is Bo Bridges' daughter. Is it? It didn't correct me, though, did you? Um, yeah, I thought... Oh, I not. <laughs> As Graham said, the setting was was iconic, and this did justice. Okay, thank you, Neil. Very succinct, Darren. <laughs> I mean, when I was watching this, it just it just reminded me of the difference between this and Malcolm and Marie. Oh, both for both of them, you got a film where the entire film was basically pretty much set in one location, and it was just people talking to each other, but. With the other one where I was bored out my head, this one I was absolutely riveted because you had these four people who were charismatic and intelligent. They had so much in, in common with their place in history and how they were all basically in one form or another, you know, a black personality in very different fields. But they all had that backing that they were basically sort of, you know, 
as, as you see at the start when it shows you various things that they're all basically controlled by, you know, by white producers or, you know, white coaches or, you know, Muhammad Ali even, he was basically had white management and everything. And then just the actual, what they were talking about, the debates and the difference of opinions was just absolutely fascinating. I, I was really intrigued by everything. I mean, Mal- Malpink X, he was basically one trying to enlighten them all. And I just just little things, especially the the arguments between him and Sam Cooke. I mean, there was a bit where we were discussing like Bob Dylan's protest songs and Malcolm X was having a go at Sam Cooke saying, you know, why aren't you making these protest songs and that? And the answer to pretty much was that as a black man, he wouldn't get away with doing a protest song. You know, he had to do the more sort of safe, acceptable uh, music that white audiences were were going to accept. And it was just little things like that, but just sort of just through them talking, it encapsulated the problems that they had. You know, even Malcolm X himself, who was sort of a political figure, he was going through a lot of them, because he was splitting with um, uh, with the Church of Islam. It was just absolutely fascinating, you know, and and I I was just like sort of in, intrigued the whole way through as the film went on. There was you, you saw like revelations, you know, and, and realizations that, that that came up. It was an interesting story for you know as we played off one another. I absolutely thought it was fascinating, and I loved the fact as well that it would go from one minute of having sort of banter and having fun, and then the next somebody would say something which would basically turn it into a different argument. And, and I was just fascinated by the whole thing and the stuff at the start as well that introduced them all. The, um, the scene with Bo Bridges was an absolute stunner. How you've got this sort of this, this sort of former coach talking to Jim Brown, and they seem to be getting on and everything. I mean, he just comes out with that statement about how he's not allowed in the house, and he just says it so matter of factly. You know, I don't think he is, is even doing it to be to be sort of nasty. It's just the way his makeup his makeup is that he just sees that as an acceptable opinion to have. And the performances across the, the board, were, you know, were really good. I, I'll be honest, I, I knew very little about Sam Cooke. Wesley Odin's performance, I thought, was absolutely fantastic. But yeah, this was a you know to me, this was a fascinating film. I'd love to see a film made about Sam Cooke because mm. um, you know this guy toured as well with Buddy Holly. You know, he was there for a lot of the key moments in music and on civil rights and met such a tragic end. So I'd mm. like to see that. And now, the way, way he admitted that he finally admitted that uh, actually he would love to have written um, How Many Roads Must a Man Walk Down. Yep. Fantastic moment. Yep. Now, I came to this film with a worry and a prejudice. The concern for me was that I have never seen Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, as he has shown in this film, portrayed well on screen, not even by Muhammad Ali himself. <laughs> Ali played himself in The Greatest, which is an awful film. Will Smith played him in Ali, which is also shockingly bad. Ali tried acting. He wasn't that good at it in films like Freedom Road. So there's always been this projection of Ali on the cinema screen that misses the mark of the man. So it was with a real delight I sat down and watched this and Ellie Gorey's performance of Cassius Clay was incredible. Not only watching him and the mannerisms, and Graham and I had this conversation, you closed your eyes and listened to him and you and you heard and you pictured uh, Muhammad Ali. And it's the hardest of the four roles mm. because the other three, we don't have the preconceptions all about Malcolm X. You just think about his glasses. 
You know, what does he sound like? I don't know. Sam Cooke, I know what he sings like. I don't know what he speaks like. Jim Brown, he could run, but, you know, he's useless against the Nazis, as we've already said. And but the alley bit was just superb. And I take Phil's points on board because this is a filmed play and there's too much exit stage left going on. And while the words are really interesting and it did keep me entertained. And, you know, I mean, Malcolm and Marie, it's a film so poor, it'd have to stand on its mother's shoulders just to kiss this film's ass. That's how bad that is compared to this. I think the one thing about it that I really think they missed a trick on is in the very beginning of the film, you see Malcolm X falling out with the Brotherhood of Islam. He sort of goes his own way. Now, that actually, after this night, caused a major fracture. And when Cassius Clay became Muhammad Ali, he cut himself off from Malcolm X. And there was a, a point some months later where Malcolm X tried to, to meet with him. Ali wouldn't even talk to him. And after X, Malcolm X had died, years later, Ali was to say it was one of the big regrets of his life that he didn't make up with Malcolm X before he died. And that sort of tone of regret... I think in everything else in this film, capturing that this moment of civil rights of these great actors would have, I think, ended it on a really positive note for me, even though it's a touchy subject and a touchy way that it would have done it. Final word about Regina, Regina King, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Regina King. I think picking stage place the film to start off with seems easy on paper, but it's very hard to get it across. And we've already said that this does occasionally miss the mark because it is very wordy. You do get these exit stage left. But I will be very interested to see what she picks as her next oh, film yeah. to direct. Um, overall, I really enjoyed it. I don't think it's the greatest like Ali was, but it's definitely worth your time. That is our take on the film version of Kemp Power's play. Let's stay in the past as we talk news of the world. My name is Captain Jefferson Kyle Kidd, and I'm here tonight to read the news from across this great world of ours. So they pay you to tell stories. I ain't never heard of that as a thing a man can do. It's not a rich man's occupation, as you can see. Understand English. Sorry, I call, but uh. Friend. It says your name is Johanna Leonberger. Indians took you when they attacked your family six years prior. Your mother, father, and sister were. Well, they passed. She's got family down in Castroville. Captain. Why are you doing this? She needs to laugh and dream. She needs new memories. No, director Paul Greengrass and Tom Hanks have not made a film about that rather seedy British newspaper. This is a Western set in 1870, five years after the end of the American Civil War. Ex-Confederate captain Jefferson Kidd, played by Tom Hanks, makes his living going from town to town reading newspaper stories to the locals. 
Travelling to his next destination, Jefferson encounters a young girl played by German actress Helena Zengel, who has been rescued from a life with Native Americans. Jefferson decides to take on the momentous task of delivering her to her only living relatives, a long journey fraught with many dangers. Graham, did you find this movie more engrossing than your favourite tabloid tome? (laughs) (laughs) Anybody who knows me will know that Jeff wrote that line. (laughs) Yeah, I did find it engrossing. Um, One of the things I love about Westerns, or classic Westerns, is that they usually take their time. We get a long stretch where the character's on a horseback going somewhere. The scenes with their majestic scenery and their stirring musical score is where we learn the backstory of the characters. And and in those moments, you know, the plot solidifies in the wagon ruts and under the hooves of the horses. And by the time we get to the action scenes, we're fully invested in the characters. This film did that so well. It was slow, but interesting opening. It develops well. And by the time you get to the first action scene, I was on the edge of my seat. Um, I watched this with my wife, and she loved every minute. I was stunned <laughs> that this was directed by Greengrass. You know, he's normally known for his real-world dramas like Bloody Sunday or United 93 or action dramas like the Bourne series. But to watch him handle long periods of sedate plot development was quite surreal, really. I, I really thought it was strange. Hanks and the young German actor uh, Zengal, they work really well together. And whilst this film is, is clearly a vehicle for its star, I thought the young girl was excellent as the troubled child with a horrific backstory. My wife loved this movie, especially the way the two central characters work so hard to understand one another, finally settling on a sort of combination of English, Kiowa, pointing and sign language. And it all just hung together brilliantly. Yes, the ending's a bit cheesy, but after all we've been through with these characters, that just felt so earned. I thought the cinematography was exceptional, mixing sort of modern elements with classic sweeping wide-angle shots that are mandatory in in Westerns. And the score was fun, I must admit, bright and engaging without being too distracting. It was just a fine accompaniment to the visuals. And after watching The Terrible Damsel last week, or last month... Last last month. Get it right, Graham. This Western was a wonderful resetting of the balance. Interesting, charming, fun, exciting... What more could you ask for from a Netflix show on a Saturday night during lockdown? This was good, not great, but it was definitely good. I think it would have been better in the cinema, though. Do you think Oh, that? yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm. Get the sweet yeah. panoramas and all that stuff, yeah. Darren? I mean, let's face it, And when you've got Tom Hanks in a movie, it's pretty hard not to root for him because there's just something about him that's just so gets you so sympathetic towards any plight that he's in. There's just, in any role, he seems to be such a, a lovable guy. And, and in this one, I love the fact that he wasn't a gunfighter or any, or any sort of history of, you know, any sort of like other figure of, of Wild West. He, he was a, a guy going town to town reading people newspapers in, in his own way. He was being like a, as important to the uh, towns that he was going of and rebellious is his own way as well. I mean, the scene where he goes into that town that's under the grip of a tyrant and he, in 
inspires the um, the locals to sort of rise up just by reading them stories about the uh, people surviving a mine. That little subversive streak of him, that little bravery he does, I, I thought was, you know, re- you know, really sort of made him a hero. And the fact that he was trying to get this, you know, this young girl back to her family, it, it was just a nail-biting story. I mean, you had you had a variety of villains. There was a loads of dangerous situations we had to go through, some man-made, some not just the environment that we were in. And this was just, to me, a really exciting Western, but I mean, I don't want to keep going on about last month's choices, but it's just the difference between this and Damsel, where you had these long sort of stretches that were just sort of like really, for, for me at least, boring and tedious. And this way you had those scenes, but they were interesting because the characters were getting to know each other and we're talking about things, we're talking about things which were interesting and just the charisma between them. I really bought into the relationship between the two, sort of, you know, how protective he was towards her. And I really enjoyed this film. I thought it was a, a, a really good one. And it looked beautiful as well. I mean, it's it's a, it's a while that I've seen a Western like this that basically showed just how vast the wilderness was that they were in, this sort of, you know, this massive frontier. And, and I agree, it would have been, for some of the shots that this film had, the, the, the colours, how vibrant it was, it would have been really nice to see this on a really big screen. But yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed this one. Yeah, I agree with you. And I would add that the two other reviewers have said, Damsel last month was shocking. I don't know who picked that, but um, <laughs> you're hanging your head in shame. And, <laughs> but normal service has been resumed. Now, to be honest, I like my Westerns like my women. Straight with a little kink. Oh, um, that, no, 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 no. Even, even if, if Les doesn't kill you, we still shouldn't put it in. <laughs> and on that level, news of the world delivers. It's essentially a road movie. And and let's be fair, most of the great Westerns are road movies. They undertake a journey where they learn something about themselves and the environment. And what intrigued me about this, that journey is the searches in reverse. Hanks is essentially the John Wayne character, and he's he's taking the girl back. It's almost after, like, the Natalie Wood character has been rescued. And there's a lovely shot where they go to where her family were killed. And there's a shot looking out of the doorway, which mirrors that famous uh, end sequence of the searchers. But of course, in this time, they've all been killed by Indians and you can no longer go back to that past. So I thought that was extremely good. Mm. Uh, mm. Helena Zengel, excellent. Hanks also, you know, the guy's just amazing. And, you know, he's out there reading the news, telling it like it is. I thought that that was really good. But I just want to go back to that Indian uh, situation at the moment, or Native Americans, for those that get sensitive about that sort of thing. Um, it didn't shy away from showing the violence that some of those people had. I don't know if anybody here has read or seen Lonesome Dev. And Larry McMurty in that talks about the violence on both sides. And this also shows that, again, I go back to that settlement camp where everybody's been killed by the uh, Indians, stroke Native Americans. But also you see the fact that, the, you know, the, the the local communities are extremely racist in the fact they killed the black chap in the beginning. They would have no compunction about shooting down Native Americans as well. So I, I thought that balance was really good. And the fact this is set in 1870 as well, so you've got the impact of the Civil War, and there's that character who they stumble across on the journey who wants him to read the news 
but you know he doesn't want the fake news he wants the real news and i wonder who that reminds you of <laughs> so there, there are some remarkable moments of tension but i don't think you can get away the film is uneven uh, i know that when the tension really clicks in like they've been chased by that little group who want to take the little girl you know you could cut it with a knife but there are other moments i think could have been trimmed down i felt it drifted a little then finally i would say it's great to see Tom Hanks back working with Paul Greenass. Of course, they previously worked together on Captain Phillips. Mm. And I'd like more of this. More real westerns. It's a great film. Neil. And there's something, as, as said before, something comforting about Tom Hanks quietly telling us a story of the old west, a slice of 19th century Americana. So Tom Hanks, obviously, as everybody says, he is fantastic. And is he ever not? There's a sadness about him. It's just so believable. Paul Greengrass lets the story flow. It's beautifully crafted. It's a rewarding and unforced film. But for all the equality, the film would fail if the young girl wasn't up to it. Young German 12-year-old actress, Helena Zengel, absolutely nails it. Largely not speaking, apart from uh, Kiowa. A uh, similar role to Daphne Keene in same age in uh, Logan. Both of them nailed the, their parts. The progression of stories that Hanks reads works really well. The listeners flock to hear him, and these stories go from unhappy news to provocative news to happy and cheerful news at the end. It's a bit che- cheesy, yes, but worth it. Beautifully made and acted, and a film worth watching again. Would you have preferred to have watched it in the cinema as well? Oh, God, yeah. Good. Phil? Even with the mighty Tom Hanks, this film struggles to live up to last month's damsel. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding, guys. Who chose damsel? I I chose damsel, and I added that to the script because I I felt that it was getting an unwarranted bashing. (laughs) I didn't think it was that bad. No, I mean, so of course I am kidding. I I did think damsel was okay, but this, this is much, much better. I found the entire film charming. It's old-fashioned. It's got glorious visuals and great performances. You've all kind of mentioned all of those things. The story is episodic and slight, but it's really exceptionally crafted, and we really do get to learn about the lead characters as we travel along with them. And I thought that the message about opening your eyes to the wider world around you, being tolerant, I just thought all those things are perfect it's a message, apparently, that we have to you know, re- remind ourselves of far too often, more than we should need to. Hanks is always great. He's probably the most reliable actor around at the moment. And the young girl, Helena Zengel, was amazing. She's just absolutely brilliant. But otherwise, I think you've all said it. It's a really enjoyable film, a really good Western in the sort of traditional sense. News of the World, a great film, which is well worth seeking out on Netflix. Let's now turn to the unusual as we talk about the oddly titled The Art of Self-Defence. I want you to tell me why you're here. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of the dark. I'm afraid of other men. <laughs> I want to be what intimidates me. You came to the right place. 
I'm taking my first class today. Your new white belt? Is that the first belt color? White is before color. You haven't earned color yet. Today's lesson, to kick with your fists and punch with your feet. That makes perfect sense. I'm interested in buying a gun. I need something that can fit into my hand. Sounds like you're after a handgun. This is your belt. It is yours. It is sacred. There'll be a $15 charge to replace a lost belt. From writer-director Riley Stearns comes this unique feature starring Jesse Eisenberg. Eisenberg is Casey, a timid and anxiety-ridden accountant. (laughs) No typecasting there. (laughs) One night, Casey has to go out to the local supermarket to get dog food for his pet. On the way home, he is attacked and badly beaten by a motorcycle guy. As he slowly recovers, Casey joins a local karate dojo to learn self-defense. There he falls under the spell of the charismatic sensei, played by Alessandro Nivola, becoming obsessed with a desire to be tough. However, Casey gradually starts to suspect there is a darker side to the dojo. Neil? Neil, would you give up golf for this karate school? Um, no, I'm not going back to karate. Um, I did it for four years. Thank you very much. No, I'm, I'm, I'll stick with the golf. Yeah, Karate Kid, where Daniel joins the Cobra Kai rather than getting lessons from Mr. Miyagi. I'm always nervous about American martial arts movies and Jesse Eisenberg in particular as well. This one snuck up on me. It doesn't take itself too seriously. It has a sort of surreal quality, not quite like Napoleon Dynamite, but it is that kind of surreal, and it's that kind of comedy. It pokes fun at martial arts dojos. There's a subtlety, like being slapped by a slice of lemon wrapped around a large gold brick. No, it's it's not subtle. Stand out in the cast for me was Imogen Poots, though through all the toxic masculinity and misogyny, she calmly waits for her opportunity, and it's brutal. Jesse Eisenberg is good too, but a bit too much like Jesse Eisenberg in a lot of films, like the first act of Zombieland. Timid, uncomfortable and scared of his shadow. The film is uneven in places, but there's plenty to enjoy. It's blunt, brutal, funny in places and uncomfortable in others. Yeah, it's it's decent. Okay, so you warm to Eisenberg in this in the end then? I can't really get on with Jesse Eisenberg full stop, but I thought Imogen Poot's character arc was far better. Okay. Phil? Uh, Well, I thought this was great. It's Fight Club meets Karate Kid. Um, It's a black comedy about toxic masculinity by way of a homage to the Karate Kid. I mean, the plot is almost exactly the Karate Kid. Mm. There's There's a bike gang, the dojo's in the strip mall, I'm, I'm glad very, you spotted that as well. Yeah, mm. I mean, <laughs> everything that happens is the Karate Kid, except, like Neil just said, he doesn't get Mr. Miyagi to say, that's wrong, by the way. <laughs> I think what I loved most about it was its odd tone. Mm. Um, all the dialogue is stilted and on the nose. Characters state the most obvious things in really earnest and serious ways. And probably the best example of that is when Casey's at his workplace and he's in the break room with the super alpha males and they're talking about male things. And like one of them is reading a magazine that is literally the glyph for male. It doesn't have a name. (laughs) Um, And they talk about push-ups. 
you know, it was just hilarious. And the revelation of how they could have the same color karate belts on their normal belts and the joy that it brings them that they can have their karate belts as normal belts, especially the guy, the, the dojo leader who's got a black belt. I mean, that's just a belt, mate. <laughs> and he replaces it with a black belt. It? It's brilliant. It's, it's hilarious. I really loved the performances. I thought Jesse Eisenberg actually does do something slightly different to his normal nervous roles. And I think he did that transformation quite well from the you know, super nervous guy who's had his self-confidence taken away to somebody a bit more in control of himself and back to his alpha dude bros in the um, break room, the scene towards the end with them I thought was really funny. Alessandro Nivola, I don't think I've seen him in anything better. The last time I really noticed him in a film was uh, John Woo's Face Off, and I thought he was great in this. You've mentioned Imogen Poots as well. She's always been like appearing in little interesting niche indie films, and this is just another one of those to add to her belt. It's really super peculiar, but I thought it was really funny. Nivola, I think, is, is a standout. Graham? What defines a man? Hey. Welsh. Or should I say somebody who identifies as male? Sorry, I'm not being politically correct there. I'm just winding you up, Jeff. I have no idea why I enjoyed this film so much, but it did impress me. It had a strange Wes Anderson vibe without Anderson's geometric aesthetic or his fanatical attention to detail. Everything seemed a little bit detached and and stilted, as Phil's just said. That would normally annoy the hell out of me that somebody was trying to do a sort of Wes Anderson light. But actually, I slowly warmed to the unreality and the colour palette and the strange audio and the room-centric action and that sort of Wes Anderson feeling just faded. Uh, this is possibly the best thing I've seen Jesse Eisenberg in since um, Cafe Society from director Voldemort. He must not be named. So Woody uh, Allen. Well, I can't mention Woody Allen. That's, he's been cancelled, hasn't he? doesn't exist anymore. I know others are reviewing this as a, a social commentary on, on macho culture, but I thought it was more... I thought it was smarter than that. I thought it was as a reverse redemption story, but not a complete fall from grace. Uh, Jesse's character starts out very human and vulnerable, and he contributes to society by being a great employee, cares for his dog. Apart from being socially awkward, what's wrong with his life? Why Why does he go off the, the rails? I just thought he just made a few bad choices, and then it just spiralled out of control for him. I loved this. I thought by the end of it, I was really on board. And that sort of, the circular nature of the story also, this spiralling down and out of control, I just really enjoyed it. I wrote in my review, strange, weird, silly in parts, but enjoyable. There's more here than first meets the eye. And I think I'd stand by that. I think it's a great little film. Not world shattering, not life changing, but just very interesting. Darren? I've not found a film so funny in ages. I mean, if, <laughs> especially if you've ever ventured into martial arts for, for any length of time, you'll you'll get some of the gags about the martial arts community, the whole sort of like you know the, the, the weirdness, and, you know, and you know the, the bit where the sensei is telling the story about the the founder of the gym. And he's coming out with all these so totally ridiculous things that he how he won all these fights and everything, and how he had the rainbow belt. And he's the only man to have the rainbow belt, and he awarded it to himself. 
and, <laughs> and, and then the bit where yeah. he's, um, he's handing Jesse Eisenberg the, the belt and he's telling him the sacredness of his belt. You know, you've got to keep his belt off your tower time. His belt is you and everything. And then he says, if you lose it, it's a $10 charge for a new one. It's just just really yeah. dry humour. I, I just thought what was great, bit where he's buying a gun and the, the guy's telling him all the dangerous things about having a gun and then basically ends it with saying, oh, you're going to love owning a gun. It was, it was just so so funny. It was just so refreshing to have something that was like genuinely witty and made you laugh at the same time. And, and there's so much going on in this. I mean, the, 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 the big thing that you take is the, the whole sort of masculinity thing. But I think there's other things as well going on there. One of, one of them is this 21st century desire to basically belong and to find meaning in something. You know, and that that's what he mm. does. Even, even as ridiculous as it is, some, you know, it's like, people who get into feng shui and all this sort of thing. It's trying to find something to focus on. I thought Jesse Eisenberg was, was really, really good. I mean, the film has got this weird, quiet tone to it. Like you said, there's like long pauses as they're talking and, and the sort of, you know, there's not very often any sort of music. It's all in the, the, the background. And and the way the story actually took a, a turn, you thought you were having this sort of comedy and then it became this sort of violent, quite, dark and, and took some you know nasty turns and the the whole sort of like you know that the community was in like sort of turned against him i i do think it's a sort of film it's a clever film but it deserves a, a like a like to be like a cult classic i think the thing that's probably going to put people off it is it is a very quiet film it's not like fight club or, or other cult films that where it makes massively spectacular and exciting visuals it's almost late too laid back for its own good at times this is the second film i've seen lately with um jesse eisenberg in, in imaging post because there was in them um, vivarium which was a, a, another really sort of like cool mm. you know cool yeah. uh cult-like movie it was a little bit weird tone to it so these two seem to have this like you know nice little double act going on but yeah i i, I, I was really imp- impressed by this film like I say if you've ever done any sort of i i did 10 weeks of jiu-jitsu when i was a student for a short amount of time and and it took me back to that time some of the sort of like the weird things that, that you know the, the weird disciplines and the weird roles that they have and how sort of how they basically sort of believe their own crap for one time better word but yeah i i really did enjoy this hmm. if i may humbly start you've all actually got something wrong about this film and i'm going to <sighs> talk on that in a moment but before oh, i go good. there i want to say that it is unusual I, I do agree with you i i quite enjoyed the film it entertained me and i've yet to see a film like this that goes from wes anderson where it starts with the quirky music the slowness of the pace and the the long shots and holding that camera static to David Fincher within the same film. <laughs> right. uh, you start as one director, you end as another. And that moment where it turns, where you've been watching this film all the way along, it's been quite quiet and gentle, and then somebody's arm's broken in a horrible way in front of you. From that moment, the film turns completely. Although, interestingly, most of the violence from that point is actually off screen. Hmm. You just think hmm. you see I just want to pick up that point then. What I'm saying is everybody's picked up on macho culture, and I don't think it is, uh, particularly because you've got Imogen Potts in there as well and is as ruthless as the others. Potts. And um, she's as ruthless as the others. And what I think the film, the film is a, is a pastiche on hierarchy, not macho. Because if you want macho, then you go to watch Fight Club. 
the best you can say about Alexandra Navarro is he's a rather thicker Tyler Durden, but that'll be about <laughs> the best you can. But generally, it's about hierarchy. So when you're in school or when you're in a workplace, you get into groups of friends, and there's a hierarchy within those groups. By setting it in a karate dojo, you can classify that hierarchy, obviously, by the belts and the seating arrangement, which uh, becomes quite a feature in the film. Mm. So I think it satirizes groups rather than machoism. Uh, and I do pick up the point that Phil made, that it is a very funny pastiche on the karate kid. Because when is this film set? There's no mobile phones. Technology is, at its best, the 80s. Yeah, I quite enjoyed that aspect as well. So unexpected, surprisingly engrossing. Poots. <laughs> Poots, sorry. If you thought the Netflix film The Art of Self-Defense was odd, wait till you check out our next review, Willy's Wonderland. <laughs> An unnamed and enigmatic character who we should just call the janitor, played by Nicolas Cage, is driving through the small hick town of Hayesville. Unfortunately, a police trap shreds his tyres and he's stuck in the town with no money to repair his car. A local businessman makes him an offer. Spend a night cleaning the closed-down family amusement centre, Willy's Wonderland, and the repairs will be done free of charge. The janitor accepts and enters Willy's Wonderland. What he hasn't been told is that the friendly animatonic characters within the funhouse are actually alive and thirsty for blood. Will the janitor last until morning? As I am sure you sneak this horror film into our review list, you can go first, Jeff. Thanks, Phil. She isn't that much of a horror, is it? Well, it wants to be. In fact, Willy's Wonderland wants to be a number of things. And one of them is it wants to be a cult film. And I said cult, Neil. So <laughs> you can correct that one if you want, but Graham will oh. cut it out. It, it just, you know, it sets up. You've got Nicolas Cage, who doesn't speak. You've got a wonderful music score that plays something out of the 80s anyway. And it's like watching the second or third entry in an 80s horror franchise. You've had the first film where they've encountered the evil for the first time and the teenagers are all killed off. So suddenly somebody either survives or a relative of theirs comes back to fight the evil. Although it's not an 80s film, Jeepers Creepers 2 is a really good example of this. And that's what you've got going on here. So it knows it's horror films and it knows it's horror tropes. The problem you've got is Nicolas Cage, actually, because he doesn't speak and because it's so odd a performance. And it may be his character from Drive Angry. He certainly had the same boots. I don't know if anybody picked up on that. But because he's so outlandish, because he is never phased by anything in the film, 
it takes away the horror and the tension. Even when it introduces that standard horror trope of the teenagers that are then killed one by one, but rather quickly, actually, it doesn't really do anything with them. And it doesn't give any character to the horror side of things. It's not like a Freddy out of Nightmare on Elm Street. The nearest it gets to that, and the nearest it almost gets to creating some tension, actually, is one of the characters tries to persuade somebody that they shouldn't be there, that they were forced to have their spirit put into this body. But that's dispensed with within two minutes. And I thought, had they played that out further, it would have been much more interesting. So it's too weird to be horrific. I mean, we'll hear from Neil shortly, and he wasn't frightened. So if that happens, you know you're in trouble. Emily Toster <laughs> is the nearest who gives a, who gives a good performance. So on that level, as the level of a horror film and a cult film, it doesn't quite cut it. But where it does cut it is as a wonderful allegory of Trump's America, because Willie's Wonderland is, on the face of it, all family, all values. But obviously at its heart is the corruption with all the serial killers. Although for the sake of legal, I'm not saying that Trump's family is serial killers. I did not say that. The whole thing is corrupt. And the people defending it are big business, the authorities, and the thicko deplorable workers. Those three groups were defending what was going on in there. And if that's not a sum up of Trump's America and where we are, I don't know what is. So fun on a subversive level doesn't quite work on a cult level. Darren, over to you. Okay, so I'm a big fan of B-movies. I love these little small, cheap horror movies, these little cheap action movies. I've got, you know, I've got a real sort of taste for them. And the wilder and more bonkers, the better for me. I also like Nicolas Cage. I will be honest, even I lost patience with this film. It had a gag in it, but... That, that played out really quick. That was basically that Nicholas Cage's character was so engrossed in basically doing his cleaning job that when any of these uh, weird creatures attacked him, he'd basically just um, get rid of them and then just move on with his job. And it was a sort of a, an okay gag, but it just made the film so repetitive. I mean, each each of these monsters that attacked, none of them had anything interesting about them, with the exception of the um, the fairy. That was generally really, really, really creepy, you know. But that was pretty much it. And the fights that he had with them, there was no sort of like special way that he dispatched them or any sort. Just sort of you know have a fight, win, and then just move on. I just got really, really boring. That the violence and the wackiness was just there for the sake of it. And it wasn't even shot interesting. I mean, that, to me, that's one of the things about these small little films is how, how they shoot them and how you can sort of see that even on a cheap budget, they try to shoot them and make them look interesting. And this just had loads and loads of, like, really shaky camera, really close-ups that you couldn't really see what was going on. But the one thing at least it should be it is fun. I mean, the, the, I will say that the, the, the young girl in it, Emily Tuster, uh, you know, she, she had a lot of presence about her. And she had a, a you know a, you know sort of nice charisma, but generally speaking, I was just really disappointed in this because I just thought the film was going to be a whole lot more fun than it is. The fact that Nicolas Cage is in it means it'll get more publicity than most, and it really annoys me because I'm I'm a, like I say I'm a fan of these movies, and I've seen so many of them on sort of just like basically browsing through Amazon Prime or Netflix, which just do really clever things and like really passionately done, and this was just sort of murky and ugly. And just really, really dull. If if you if you want to see a film of this sort of premise, 
done really, really well. Please check out the Banana Splits movie. It is so much more fun. <laughs> it's so much more gory. And I will say weirdly scary and there's some good characters in it as well so check out the banana splits movie the last i saw it was on amazon prime there's also a film on um, netflix called hellfest which is a similar sort of premise and and again is is a lot is a lot better than this but i was i was really disappointed by this if you're gonna at least somehow get nicholas cage to be in your movie but you know you at least do something interesting with it and, and try and make it look good. But I was just, um, I, I was really disappointed with this. Thank you, Darren. And just a clarification for our listeners, when Darren said fairy there, he meant a spirit creature, nothing else. Oh, okay. Graham. Christ. <laughs> Graham. I wish I'd spoken to you before I watched this, Darren, because I had no idea what the hell was going on. <laughs> I really didn't. I watched this after I'd watched it. I phoned Jeff and said, what have I just watched? What's the horror in this? And, and what have I missed? I was very proud of myself. I said, oh, look, the blonde girl died first. I know that's a horror trope. But what what was this all about? And Jeff was as clueless as me. We did discuss. I wasn't clueless. Yes, you I were. No, generally. <laughs> you explained the trumpet, which, yeah, I, I thought was quite clever, but... I just could not get on with this. I just thought, well, there's, you know, there's 88 minutes of my life I'm not going to get back. It's just, <laughs> what the hell? And it started so well. I thought he's going to start saying something in a second, but he didn't. And what was the point of the, the drink he was drinking? And I thought, if this is a B movie, I'm going to have a serious word with Darren. So thank God Darren didn't like it because <laughs> I thought it was nonsense for just one thing, you mentioned Nicolas Cage as well. One of the things that Nicolas Cage does really, really well and is well known for is is going insane. Yeah. If you ever saw a film called um, Mom and Dad where he basically <laughs> starts singing the okie-cokie while smashing up a pool table, that's the sort of thing that's great about Nicolas Cage. He's over the top and he goes, like, bizarre and does all these things. And this one, he was just, like, so cool. He never sort of changed his personality. If I want Nicolas Cage in this film, I want him doing really weird, wacky stuff, not just sort of like taking everything in his stride. I want him to have a meltdown. I, I would call him OCD in this, Darren, the way he had to take his mm. breaks at the right time. Yeah. Actually, that was one of the few funny bits in this film that I thought was that when his uh, alarm went off, it was time for his break and to go have his beer, and he just left the girl to fend for himself. That, that bit I thought was genuinely funny. That was the one funny, clever bit in the film. That was like the equaliser almost. He set his watch and then he was off. Yeah, I thought that was quite fun. But I did not understand this at all. Good job I was there to help. Phil. <laughs> so 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 this month on the review podcast, I've turned into Jeff and I'm the contrarian because I thought this was really good. <laughs> so it's the second film tonight. I have an opposite opinion to everyone else on. Um, I thought it was a lot of fun. It essentially is walking a tightrope between being bloody awful and really funny and really good. And I think it just manages it. It just kind of manages to keep that even keel of awful ratio to, to fun. I thought it was really clever that it didn't explain any of its surreal, bizarre ideas. And what Jeff said about it being like the second or third in a series kind of actually rings true in that. So we don't know why Cage never talks we never find out his name. 
We don't know what his energy drink schedule is all about. It was an energy drink. He did see it close up. What is his obsession with pinball and his cleaning schedule that Darren just mentioned? And why is he such a badass? I mean, he's got a hot rod car and he wears sunglasses indoors. He's clearly <laughs> too cool for school. I just thought it was downright bizarre. I did think that the animatronics were really creepy. There was a place that we used to visit when I was a kid called Pirate Pete's, and I found that pretty creepy as a kid, and I, I kind of dug that you know this had that vibe. And I also liked the uh, the teenage kids thing where it introduced them and it like the, the entire plot of the film, they just could not care less. They literally were like, here's some kids we're going to kill. You don't need to know anything about them. And by the way, if you have sex in a horror movie, you're going to die. On that point, Phil, that's why I'm amazed Neil doesn't watch, you know, why he doesn't watch more horror films, because he'd always survive to the end. <laughs> ah, you're funny. You're but yeah, funny. I mean... I I thought it was fun. It's definitely quirky. Definitely quirky. Neil. Yeah, well, I I was sold this as a sort of horror film, and I it, it isn't. It's nowhere near that. It's bonkers. It's cheesy, gory, funny camp, and there's tons wrong with it. But there's also so much more to enjoy. Nick Cage chews the scenery and takes breaks at specific times for no reason. He's dialed up to 11. Critics may say he's overacting, but he's, I think he thought he was just enjoying himself. I think it is B-movie. It deserves some credit for what it is rather than what it isn't, and it's fun. It's cheap and cheerful. Sure, it's derivative. I might, I'm sure you could probably play cliche bingo or bullshit bingo ticking off the movie references and cliches but for all that i quite enjoyed it in a pandemic world of poor films Malcolm and marie i'm telling you is taking themselves too seriously we get a nick cage film that doesn't and he never says a word and it ends with Freebird. i mean what's more to like i actually quite enjoyed this one bizarrely it was i must have been in a strange mood or drunk and on that bombshell yeah so willie's wonderland is available as a video on demand and it sounds like it's in neil's film collection forever (laughs) (laughs) let's move on to our final review of the month and let's go to real life horror with i care a lot although People have said this film is about me and my compassion. <laughs> well, I am going to mention that. Good morning, Miss Peterson. I'm sorry to disturb you so early. The court has ruled that you require assistance in taking care of yourself. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm afraid it's not up to you to decide. The court has appointed me to be your legal guardian. What? You have to come with me. And remember, I'm here to help. I know what you do here, your hustle. Look at all these cash cows on your wall just leaking money into your account. But Jennifer Peterson, she's off limits. She has very powerful friends who can make life uncomfortable for you. How uncomfortable are we talking? I don't lose. I won't lose. I'm never letting you go. 
You're in trouble now. Rosamund Pike recently won the Best Actress Golden Globe for her portrayal of devious scammer Marla Grayson. Marla is the worst type of scanner, a legal one. She runs a racket to move old, vulnerable people to care homes while she pockets their assets. It has been a lucrative con for years until she moves Jennifer Peterson, played by Diana Beast, into a home. Unknown to Martha, Jennifer has connections, powerful and dangerous ones. Marla soon finds herself in a cat and mouse game for her life. Darren, did you think Rosamund Pike deserves the Best Actress Award for her performance? I think she's worth a discussion, definitely. If you consider the role of a performer is to get a reaction out of the audience, she certainly did that because I absolutely hated her and, and hated her in a good way because I think she's one of the best villains we've had in a film for ages. I mean, I've got to admit, I was, I was a bit nervous about this film because I, I have a thing about confidence tricksters and people being taken advantage of. It's something that really gets gets me angry and upset, even in a movie. For this, this was worth battling through because I, I just thought this film was absolutely great. Like I said, I hated Rosamund Pike character in this film and I was really rooting for her to get her comeuppance. And so it was great when you find out that she picked the wrong victim and she was on the wrong end of the gang of Russian gangsters. But the fact that she kept outwitting them, it made it even more infuriating as they came along as you thought, oh, she's in trouble now. And she'd managed to get her way out of this. And it even got to the point where, as much as I hated her, I started to admire her because she wasn't the sort of villain that would be went crying and, and bitching about the predicament. She basically just sort of took it on the chin and basically just thought, right, I've got into this situation. I'm going to get out of it. And the fact that she kept outwitting the, uh, you know, the, the, the Russian mafia and everything, I, I kind of sort of like, you know, I, I, once, I still wanted to get hers, but I kind of sort of ad- admired that about her. And, and it's a weird film because it really tests those loyalties you are on because you, you basically are against the protagonist. You, you're basically wanting them, her to get theirs. But I thought this was, film was absolutely compelling. And, and I liked her character as well because he is nasty and as bitchy as, as she was she wasn't a, a complete heartless person she was you know she she loved uh, her 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 fiance she, you know she you saw that she was sort of good to her friends and stuff it was just that she didn't have any compassion outside of her in, in a circle but I, I just thought this was a really sort of you know exciting you know compelling movie like 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 a 70s drama like you know you, she was almost kind, uh, coming on to anti-hero level I thought it was a, a really good film. I really enjoyed it. It's interesting that people say you can't identify with a film if you can't identify with the character. And yet what you're saying, Darren, and I would agree with you, is that because she's so out there, she just holds your attention throughout. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah. anyone who says that has never watched films from the 70s. You, you know, they've, they've <laughs> never watched I don't. I don't think you have to to see through the eye of, of your main character or be rooted. You know, you can have films about sort of villains and anti-heroes, and this was a perfect example of that. Yeah, definitely. Phil? Well, I think this month we've had a really good batch of films, um, and in the most part I've really enjoyed them, and I think we've saved the best for last. Uh, let's be clear, though, there are no likeable characters in this film, and if that's an issue, um, it might not be for you. And I do know a few people who don't like things like 
you know, Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul because there's nobody to root for because they're all assholes. Yeah, and th- that's the case here. They are all not very nice people. You know, I loved that it started out as a message movie about the failures in the legal system and crooked guardians and kind of turned into this thriller about gangsters and you couldn't quite tell where it was going to go next. I knew little about it when I started watching and honestly in the first 20, 30 minutes I thought it was going to be this uh, Mark Ruffalo legal drama where it was all about how like, bad the legal system was and <laughs> it turned into this great fun a moral thriller. I thought it was it was really good. I loved that it made me root for the Russian gangsters. I really, really wanted them to kill her. I really did. Um, when you're rooting for a group of people that it's made clear smuggle people across border for the sex trade, you know, you know that the film's a bit peculiar. That it's making you root for those people. I thought Rosamund Pike was brilliant. If you add this to Gone Girl, she now has to be the go-to person to play an amoral schemer. I loved Chris Messina's suits and his scene-stealing moments. He was the... He so <laughs> dreadful. Oh, God. I mean, the wardrobe department brought their A-game just to his suit. So I thought yeah, I mean... It, was so, it, it actually made you grind your teeth. They were so hideous. But he has the panache to yes. pull them off. <laughs> um, and I love Peter Dinklage's beard and his menace. Oh. I did think that he was a good villain. I really enjoyed it. I was engrossed throughout. It's, it's the best of the crop this, this month. So what do you say to all those reviewers that have said, oh, well, this runs out of plot halfway through? I don't think it does. I I thought that, you know, there was always something different happening. And, you know, you you had the whole thing about at the start, it was this whole legal sort of drama and how could she possibly do this? And you're outraged. And then you had the mystery of who Diane Weist was playing. She's picked the wrong person. There's the tussles. And then it turns into a thriller and it's like, will she get out of it? And do you want her to? I didn't think it run out of steam at all. No, I, I agree. I mean, it's. I, I think a lot of reviewers just couldn't go with it where it was going. They wanted it to be that message film, the Mark Ruffalo t- style of movie, and just didn't get that it changed gears. You know, we can't really talk enough about Christmas in a suits either. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Neil, the suit, our suit-wearing man, what do you say about it? <laughs> IMDb lists this as a comedy crime thriller. It's absolutely horror. <laughs> I mean, this is horrible film. Yes, Rosamund Pike is outstanding, and I love Peter Dinklage in it, and, and two arseholes facing off against each other. Diane Weist is excellent as a 70-year-old being dragged away into a care home Uh, who should i root for i do have a problem with who i should root for it was like watching liverpool versus dirty leeds you want neither team to win and neither to get neither don't want to draw either or spurs versus west ham for 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 our american listeners neil's gone into soccer mode yeah i it, it there has to be somebody i like and there wasn't anybody no comeuppance, no peripheral characters are killed off as soon as they become interesting and the two arseholes remain. Rosamund Pike deserves her Golden Globe. She is incredible. 
J- newcomer James J. Blakeson deserves credit for his feature debut and writing it. Uh, it- no, no, and I take great pleasure in correcting you. <laughs> he actually was the director of the disappearance of Alice Creed. A oh, decade he was, ago. wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. So um, I, yeah. you, you may stand corrected. Carry on, Neil. So newish comer. It's clever. It's so many primary flipping colours. I don't know if this this is actually true and it can be done, but I suggest, Jeff, at your age, you shouldn't go to America again. It's a tough watch. Cynical beyond belief. And, and it's so pleased with itself about the fact. I mean, there's a scene where Rosamund Pike escapes from the car. I mean, sorry, spoiler alert. And she stomps, soaking wet into this all-night garage She's standing there. She's got drinking the milk, and she's got these ex- clothes that she's going to uh, get into, and she, the steam coming out of her ears is the anger as she's plotting her revenge. Is ah oh, so so good? Yeah, I found this very difficult to watch. Apart from the fact it is a very good film, but as a horror film, I found it difficult. Uh, I would say this film give me an idea, but unfortunately, Neil, you've got no assets. Uh, Graham. <laughs> well, I'm going to be the contrarian one for this one because uh, uh, although I thought English Rose Rosamund Pike was just wonderful, I thought Peter Dinklage was terrible. I mean, I know he can act. I've watched him in, was it, 73 episodes of How to Train Your Dragon or whatever that thing was he did. Yeah. Game of Thrones, Graham. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Sorry, I didn't get that. I've just got it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Graham. You made me laugh. <laughs> You're welcome. Always here to help. I mean, he was supposed to be a mafia boss, and he was meant to be brooding and evil, and he just came across to me like Chef Linguini in Ratatouille. Um, he Poor, brought- that was racist. <laughs> No, that was heightest, Jeff. Get your uh, prejudice right. Um, I thought the final con was so unbelievable. And it took, you know, it took me right out of the final part of the movie. Although I did enjoy the last shot on the movie, but it, this didn't do much for me. Apart from Rosamund Pike, who was completely evil, and that little thing she did where she moved her hair round the back of her ear. Hmm. Uh, Oh, uh, you know, she's up to no good whenever you saw that. Um, plotting. Yeah. She's plotting, and I thought the suits were fantastically bad. Just <laughs> just that edge, just too much over the edge of being tacky. Mm. Yeah. So, no, it, this didn't, one didn't work for me. Although, you know, I sat through it. I wasn't bored. Uh, I've got to start by saying, Darren, Phil, and Neil, thank you all for excellent contributions and salient points. Graham, I don't know where you come up with that bollocks from, but clearly it's wrong. Um, this oh, is an okay. I'm glad you come up with a, a reasoned and thought out excuse. Right? Well, I'm just about to explain why oh, you're yeah. talking out of uh, an orifice here. Um, this is an astonishingly bold and brave movie <laughs> from Jay Blakeson, a British writer-director who's been around for a while. He made his first film ten, oh, ten, Jeff. ten years ago with the disappearance of Alice Creed. Right on. It, it has a wonderful 80s aesthetic with its cool look and killer soundtrack from Mark Carnham. 
but a 70s sensibility in terms of character, which Darren's all, already alluded to. In many ways, this film reminds me of one of my absolute favourites, Thief, an early Michael Mann film that stars James Kahn as a thief who wants to go straight, but again, had the same aesthetics. And there's no nice characters in that film either. You wouldn't want to be around anybody in this film in real life. She goes beyond anti-hero into being a real villain. Although I would say I learned lessons watching this film and there's much I admire and try and aspire to from this <laughs> character. God. So it does keep that detachment on screen. And it's interesting, like everybody else, and I think Phil said this, you know, you want the Russian mafia to kill her, yet at the same time when she's in that car that's slowly sinking into the water and you don't know whether she's going to get out or not, there is a real moment of tension there. So even at that point, with a character you hate... There's no tension. I wanted her to die. <laughs> yes, but, you know, as people have said about me, Neil, I care a lot. <laughs> and... <laughs> For fuck's sake, that's terrible. <laughs> oh. It's Rosamund Pike, confident, assured, and hateful. And I just want to pick up that point of Graham's uh, Peter Dinklage. So this is the character that had faked his own murder. Uh, sorry, spoiler alert, but it's too late now anyway because I've already said it. But he's faked his own death. Off, off screen, which you never yeah. see. Right? Yeah, but he keep, you know, he's meant to be low-key and he has trouble keeping his rage in. So, you know, the the different levels to that character, which I really liked, and the way he assesses situations, I thought was really good. It's a very subtle performance, so I can see how we can be lost on some members of the team. Oh. Um, <laughs> oh. Oh. And that ending, again, we talk about 70s without giving the game away, but if you've seen Electric Light in Blue, one of the oh, yeah. landmark films That's of the 1970s. Giving the game away then? Well, only for people that have seen it. Um, let's let's test that theory. Phil, have you seen Electric Light in Blue? No. Darren, have you seen Electric Light in Blue? No. Graham, <laughs> f*** off. And, um, <laughs> You're just assuming I haven't. I know you haven't. No. No. Okay. There we go. So <laughs> I, don't, I think I have. Really? Hmm. Okay. It's the same ending. Essentially, it's the same ending. Bold, it's engrossing. Mark Carnham's score, as I said in the beginning, it's fantastic. This, to me, is an early contender for film of the year. It's that good. So, thank you guys for your thoughts on this incredible movie. I Care A Lot can be found on Amazon Prime. Let's go over to Darren's Dash for some other recommendations. Okay, so first up is uh, White Tiger, which is a um, fairly new uh, Netflix original film. This one is set in India, and it's all about a successful entrepreneur who uh, looks back at his starting life. And he picks up with him as a young man in the slums who decides to become a success in life uh, by managing to get a job with a wealthy um, family as their driver. And from there, manages to ingratiate him with them and, and tries to become part of the family. So when he starts off, this film feels like it's going to be upbeat, slumdog millionaire type film, like a, you know, a, um, you know, the secret of my success type movie. And it's got its tone and that, and you think you're in for a sort of like you know, nice little comedy. 
And then halfway through the film, it takes this massive turn. There's an event that basically turns this from a comedy into a thriller. This film reminded me a lot of Parasite. It's got the dark humour, but it's also very much based on the uh, class divide. Uh, very much so, more so than, than Parasite, because it's very sort of like, you know, in India based on the caste system. And it's a, um, a satire on the ongoing story, how the lower classes in India are kept there by a system of servitude. And now we're almost sort of brainwashed into, fit, you know, feeling that this is their place. Some really good performance as uh, you know, Shopa Jones, who was one of India's highest paid actresses in there, made me laugh at times. It made me really, really angry. Um, the way he was exploited, but the way he would fight back and try to sort of like you know, sort of get out of his situation. It, it was one of those films as well that this character you, you knew that what he was the sort of things that he was doing would be wrong, but at the same time, you couldn't tell for real, real for him. Because the people who were the rich people who were oppressing him, you know, they, they were sort of trying to keep him down, and he was just basically trying to basically make his his way in life. And it was also in a weird sort of way really optimistic at the same time because this was a guy who was basically willing to fight back. And so this is a, a really f- uh, funny film, a really exciting film, and a really dark thriller. And uh, this one, I, um, I I think was a, was a really great movie. Excellent. Anybody else seen it? No, it's definitely on my list. So the next one is another Netflix film. This one's called Moxie, and it's uh, directed by comedian Amy Pula, who has a, a small uh, role in it as well. It's basically about a young girl called Vivian, and she's at a high school where basically misogynistic behaviour is running completely out of control. Everything comes to a head when the um, it turns out that the popular jocks there, who are you know completely really sleazy towards the females and everything, turns out that every year they do a a rankings list of all the girls, which and with various um, awful little categories such as best ass, most bangable, and things like that. And this girl, she Vivian, she basically finds out that her mother used to be a feminist protester in the day. And she becomes inspired to make a change. And what she does is she does this in a very old school, punky way. She actually makes her own fanzine and starts leaving it in the um, girls' toilets. And she starts to become um, a really big hit. And she's doing this all sort of secretly. And it starts this movement and inspires all the other girls to basically make a stand in the school as well. There's a very similar vibe to Booksmart here, or I have to say it's not nearly as good or as funny, but it's a really likeable film. It's kind of got a really 80s style vibe to it. And even though it's touching on some really like serious and potentially dark issues, it's very bright and glowy, fantastically optimistic, even so that you could say it's very simplistic and naive in many ways. It has a really good heart about it, and it does have a really sort of um, old-school rebelliousness to it, and it is a really inspiring one. I have to say, if I had a daughter, this is a film I'd really want her to to watch. After I watched this film, I actually just out of curiosity, I went on Twitter and just to see what um, other people are saying about this film. It was really heartwarming what I found. There were lots of uh, young girls, teenage girls, who uh, tweeted about this film with, with the hashtag, but they were posting photographs of themselves where they had on their hands, they'd drawn little stars and um, uh, hearts and things. And that is a part of the film is that how this secret society that uh, develops with, with the girls. 
they uh, draw stars and hearts on their hands to show that they're part of this uh, like solidarity with each other and so they can recognise each other. And I thought that was really heartwarming that sort of this film had obviously reached an audience that it was going for, but they'd felt inspired to do this. So, you know, and you know, like I say, it is a very... It's a very positive movie. It has got all the sort of tropes in there because you've got the girl who's running it. She basically starts to distance herself to the thing that she's always had because she's now seen it in a more like cool light and everything. And you've you've got the sleazy guy, but you've also got the nice, lovely boyfriend that she gets to. And so you've got all those sort of things. But you know, it's like I say, it's very sort of like you know quite predictable in some of these things but i thought this was a wonderful little movie and you know and and like i say the fact that it's reached out to so many people is a really good thing excellent anybody wow. else seen it no no again no. let's go on the list God, phil you've watched 60 movies and that's two we've now gone through i know you? i've not seen any of darren's this week both of those he's just talked about are on my list but i've i have actually watched about half a dozen netflix films in the last couple of weeks but they're not these Okay. Darren, back to you. Okay, so my next one is is another Netflix film, and this one's called All My Friends Are Dead. <laughs> now, this is a Polish film, and it starts off with a couple of policemen who, who uh, discover a massacre that has occurred at a New Year's Eve party. And they walk into this absolute scene of blood and devastation. There are bodies everywhere in weird places. There's a pizza delivery boy hanging from the ceiling. There's a guy who's dead at a piano. Another guy's found in, the, in a uh, bedroom in Essamengia. It's basically just this uh, weird scenario. And so the film then after that goes back to the start of the party and it shows you everything that went down. And this is a fairly average party that's got a few weird characters and there's lots of like sort of couples who've all got their own sort of baggage that they bring and all these little sort of like, you know, arguments and disputes which are simmering, which are bound to come out of this party. And then just due to a few uh, misunderstandings, so coincidences, accidents and a fair amount of sex and drugs, the whole party descends into just one big massive slaughter. The reviews of this have not been very kind. I had an absolute blast with this film. It was over the top. Um, the whole scenario was preposterous, uh, but intentionally so. And it was just just funny how all these sort of deaths just started happening completely by accident and just sort of how it escalated, delightfully gory and violent and 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 just absolutely crazy. This was a good film to um, to have an evening with a beer and just sort of something to sort of just laugh at in a really, really perverse way. I thought this was a really fun movie. Also had a really good soundtrack as well. There was lots of sort of party music that went along with the theme of the New Year's Eve party. And so if you want something a bit sort of wild and, and funny and really, you know, deliciously depraved, I would really check this one out. This one's a really lot of fun. Sounds like one of Neil's golf club parties. <laughs> ah, Jesus Christ. We don't have golf club parties. We're too old. Okay. Back to you, Dan. Okay, so for my last one, um, is a film that I discovered called White God. 
Now, I've got to say that this, this Dash segment that I do, I don't always talk about new films. Sometimes if I if find a film that I've never heard of before and that I think might be sort of really interesting, I'll, I'll sort of highlight this as well. Now, this is a film I came across recently. Film 4 had a series of, well, we didn't really give it a title, but it was basically wild and over-the-top movies. This is a 2014 Hungarian movie. And it's about a young girl who goes to stay with her father. And she has to bring her uh, her beloved pet dog with her, which causes lots of problems as dogs aren't allowed in the, uh, the flat that her father owns. And this causes lots of arguments and resentment between the two. And eventually, um, during a drive, he loses his temper and he dumps the dog out in the middle of the city and drives off. So from that point, you've got two stories. You've got the young girl trying to cope of life without the dog and trying to find him. and um, But then you've also got another story running at the same time. It's the story of the dog surviving on the streets. So you follow this dog. He's, he basically, he's sort of trying to find food and stuff. He actually um, forms a bond with another dog and ends up joining a pack. And then there's all these perils that they go through. They're fleeing from dog catchers. And the, the dog even ends up at one point in the hands of a, uh, a dog fighting ring who uh, starts to train him to fight other dogs and things. It's one of the most unique films I've seen in a in a long time. The thing I loved about it is it managed to tell the dog's story just by filming its reactions to things. And it just looked so authentic that at times you almost could see what the dog was thinking. And when it was sort of like interacting with other dogs and telling this story, it, it, it was absolutely uh, um, gripping. And towards the end, the film actually takes this almost surreal, fantastic turn that goes into just like sheer fantasy and it's absolutely brilliant and gobsmacking. You can even use the film as like analogy for the way that sort of apply to oppressed people and people who are in poverty and stuff like that and how they'll sort of rise and, and fight back, you know, if they've pushed too far. And and I thought this film was absolutely out, outstanding. I, I thought it was great. It's I have to say, though, if you are upset about cruelty to animals, then, then be cautious because there are a lot of tense moments in this in this film there's actually even scenes of the of the dog engaging in in dog fights which if you look closely you can actually see that it's clever editing that makes it look like that these two dogs are in a vicious fight when in reality you can see that they're really just like play wrestling with each other if there was an academy award for animals this dog would get it because this dog was brilliant (laughs) better than lassie much better than last Thank you for that, Darren. So that completes the dash for this month. Okay, so everybody, out of the films reviewed, which would you rate as your film of the month? One Night in Miami. I agree with Neil. One Night in Miami. Ah. Uh, I care a lot, which could be my mantra for life. <laughs> I'm I'm going to go for news of the world. Phil, what about you? I'm going to go for I care a lot as well. I can't have one night in Miami winning. That's a draw. Yeah. yeah, three good but films. I thought actually we had a really good crop. It's yeah, it's, it's not a great. Five were, all five yeah. are watchable, weren't they? Yeah, they were. 
even the one that I think overall came down as the least, Willy's Wonderland, was better than at least three of the films last month. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. yeah, they're very true. Okay. As for next month, we have The Resurrection of King at Easter. After the success of talking about Stephen King last Halloween, we have put together another three shows. Sports reporter John Palmer tells us what his favourite five top sports movies actually are. Film reviewer and blogger Kaz talks us through some of her incredible choices on her top film list. So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another At The Flicks is in the can. Neil, I have this court order to move you into home for your own safety. Just please sign this form, passing on your golf clubs and other possessions to me. Let me introduce you to my six iron. Okay, you two, let's wrap this one up for this month. Thank you. And to everyone else. Thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>